This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Welcome to another episode. I'm Jonathan Stein. I'm joined today by David Gray, Chief of Staff to the Mayor Tom Butt of Richmond, California. David, thanks for joining us. And thank you for having me, Jonathan. Appreciate it very much. You're Chief of Staff to the Mayor, um, which means you're deeply, deeply involved in local government. So many of our peers are working on the Hill um, in Congress uh, or are budget analysts for the city of San Francisco or, or in the legislature, excuse me. What drove you towards local government specifically? Well, you know, thank you for that question. Uh, it really started when I was a senior in high school. Uh, I don't hail from Richmond. I hail from New Orleans, yeah. uh, Louisiana. And as a senior in high school, my family uh, suffered the effects of Hurricane Katrina. Our house was flooded for about three days uh, under 10 feet of water. Wow. Uh, everything in our house and everything in all of our neighbors' homes were completely wiped out. And in the aftermath, I, I watched as local government leaders uh, and state government leaders made decisions around resource allocations, what neighborhoods were allowed to receive goods, who was allowed to go to their homes, what time were curfews set in different areas. And I noticed that Communities like mine that were predominantly African-American had fewer uh, time to look through their house, to clean up their house. We couldn't stay in our neighborhood, while more affluent communities uh, were allowed to to clean and were provided with resources. Uh, FEMA and assistance stations were located in those communities. Uh, And it was at that point that I realized, you know, getting involved in local government is important. It's important not just in times of crises like Hurricane Katrina, but it's important from every resource allocation perspective, whether you're talking about schools or transportation, uh, housing, uh, fresh water and wastewater, like what's happening in Flint. Uh, So it was at that moment that I told myself I'm going to dedicate my life to working at some capacity in local government. And here I am some years later in Richmond as chief of staff for the mayor's office. Yeah. And and in moments like Hurricane Katrina, the entire world can see the power of local government and the failings of local government. But there's just as much work being done on a day-in, day-out basis that I think escapes public view when the headlines are focused on national affairs or maybe statewide affairs. Yes, I I think you're you're totally right on that point. I, I think people, even right now, they look at uh, federal policy, federal decision makers. We're in the midst of a presidential election right, right. now where everybody's focused on Trump and, 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 and Hillary and what are they doing about economics? What are they doing about immigration? What are they doing about drug use? What are they doing about all these issues? And what people tend to forget is that the implementation of a lot of those policies happen on a local level. It happens with your school district. It happens with your council. It happens with your mayor's office. Uh, and so focusing on how those local decisions are being made uh, is extremely important because that's the way that you're directly going to benefit or not from those decisions. In California, in the nonprofit sector, there is this dynamic where um, all the overeducated do-gooders like myself um, and like you uh, live in the Bay Area and the need in California, the greatest area of need in California is the Central Valley. And, but fewer people want to live in the Central Valley. And so we sort of export our good work as far as to the extent we can to the Central Valley. Um, you were in Louisiana, a state that, that really does have need, right? There's, there's enormous need there, and you were beginning to do good work. Now, waiting for you here in California was this rocket ship that would take you <laughs> from, we're going to get into this, but you were an intern uh, in 2011, I think, in the city of Richmond, and your chief of staff to the mayor in 2016. So there was this, this escalator straight to the top waiting for you. 
How did you make that choice? What was running through your mind when you had to make that choice? It's interesting. So you're right. After I graduated from Cal, uh, I made a decision to myself before I came to the Goldman School. Uh, and that commitment was to go back to Louisiana for at least two years okay. and to give back to my home state for at least two years. Uh, and the reason for that was uh, as I was going through high school and then undergrad at Tulane, I saw a lot of people graduate and leave mm -hmm. and it just went other places. And so it's this it, this brain drain of sorts. You know, the state raises people and it trains them and it educates them and then they all leave and go do great work somewhere else. Meanwhile, on the home front, we're just left without that intellectual capital. So I graduated from Goldman, uh, moved back to Louisiana, and I was working in state politics, which wasn't where my heart lied, uh -huh. frankly, um, but it was where really great work was happening. Uh, while I was working at Goldman, though, or while I was studying at Goldman, I was interning for the city of Richmond. Uh, and when I went back to Louisiana, about that same time, the gentleman I was interning for got elected mayor. Uh, so he called me up one day and said, I'm looking for staff for my office. I want to bring you in to manage our economic development work. Would you be interested? Uh, and I said, of course, I'd be interested, but I need some time to think about it. Uh, and for the reasons that you mentioned, uh, it, it's, it's really easy to be enticed to live in the Bay Area and to leave places that are economically deprived. Uh, the thing about Richmond is that even within the Bay Area context, it's a city that typically falls on the short end of the stick. It's a, it's a city that's perceived regionally as a dangerous place to live, uh, as a place that you don't want to do business in, as a place that you don't want to invest in. And it also deals with some of those same social issues that Louisiana is dealing with. Uh, so for me, it, it was like, okay, if I'm going to go to the Bay Area, there's no other city that I don't want to work mm. in but Richmond because yeah. there's a real need here for people. And, and I will say today, I, you know, we have about nine or ten Goldman School alum who are working in key leadership positions in Richmond, whether that's with the city or whether that's with a nonprofit. They're there doing excellent work. Right. That's fantastic. When you were appointed to, to the position of chief of staff, you were 27, 28 years old, right? I was 27. Was there any part of you that was, I mean, were you just hungry for it from the get? Or were you, like, was there part of you that was like, am I the right person for this job? Maybe somebody who's a decade older than me would be the right, per more appropriate. I, I think every day I, I wrestle with okay. that as a younger professional in this role where, I mean, even now the mayor's out of town for a week and a half on family vacation, our council's on recess. Are you like the fill-in mayor? So I'm the fill-in mayor. Are you really? We, we do have a vice mayor, but when the city manager has to make real difficult calls and he needs the mayor's opinion, I'm the fill-in <laughs> mayor. And so it, it's, it's an interesting position to be in uh, as a young professional trying to help, you know, guide a city's direction and, yeah. and make these tough decisions, uh, especially on behalf of a mayor that's been on the council for 20 years and so very well established, a lot of credibility. Uh, the way I became chief uh, was we, we had a chief of staff prior to me. Uh, he and his husband moved to another city. Yeah. Uh, and when he moved, I talked to the mayor and I said, I, I think I'm qualified. I believe that I can handle the responsibilities of leading this office and of making smart policy calls for our city and on your behalf. Uh, I think we work really well together. Yeah. Uh, and he made me fill out an application uh -huh. and I did a formal sure. interview and of we course. did the whole nine yards. And uh, the day uh, he... he he emailed me his decision. I was actually visiting family in Louisiana, uh -huh. uh, doing some work on a family member's house, and I almost didn't believe it. I thought somebody yeah. hacked into his account. Uh, I called him up and I said, are you sure you meant to send this <laughs> to me? And from that day forward, uh, it, it's been a, a constant process of self-reflection, yeah. um, rethinking decisions, uh, wondering if I'm qualified enough, if my staff is qualified enough. 
I've been very fortunate, though, to have a boss that's very open and honest with his feelings. Right. Uh, I'm still in the position, so I think I'm doing something right. Right. Um, but having a, a good base of confidence is, is important. I mean, for any young professional, not just me, for, for anybody, having, having something in your life that uh, you, can, you can look at or, or a person you can go to to talk about decisions and, and talk to when, when you're at your low points, yeah. that could help pick you yeah. back up is yeah. important. And, and, and Who are those for you? What is that for you? For, I mean, for your faith, I'm sure, is part of it, For right? me, a big part of it is my faith. Right. Um, I'm really very religious, really involved in my church. Uh, it's also my wife. Yeah. Uh, I talk to her about everything. Uh, and then I have another member of my staff, uh, our director of policy and strategy, who's another 27-year-old. Uh-huh. So if the mayor is out and I'm out, he's... He's, he's the, the fill-in mayor? He's the fill-in mayor. So you have these two 27-year-olds, you know, who are making these decisions. Yeah. Uh, and we just have, you know, great lines of communication. Uh, all ego goes out the door. All pride goes out the door when it comes time to make tough business yeah. calls. And yeah. so having colleagues in the workplace that you can go to right. uh, is, is key. So let's talk about the big challenges facing local government in the, in the Bay Area, right? So let's get down to some of the substance and, and how, how it, um, the rubber hits the road yes. in, in Richmond. So... My first question is, how do you, how does Richmond um, benefit from the expansion of the Bay Area economy and participate in the Bay Area's new and growing industries while insulating the residents of Richmond from some of the impacts we've seen in San Francisco and Oakland when it comes to affordability overall, when it comes to decreasing availability of housing and so on? How do you reap the benefits of that growth while not making some of the mistakes that other municipalities have made? I think that's a big challenge. For, for Richmond and mm-hmm. for every city, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, R- Richmond is interesting in that, although we have this regional economic boom happening everywhere, in part because of the tech industry and other industries happening here, uh, we don't see a whole lot of that economic boom in Richmond. Now, it's starting to come. We're kind of on the front end of that. Uh, and in similar manner, we're on the front end of rent increases, residents right. getting displaced, right. all right. those things. Right. And, and essentially, the, the way the population shift has worked is as people have... Uh, left San Francisco and moved into Oakland, particularly West Oakland and, and East Oakland, they've leapfrogged Berkeley and right. gone to Richmond. right into Richmond. Yep. And so uh, it, it's been interesting having, interesting having to deal with, with that for the first time uh, in about 15 years as a city, mm-hmm. uh, population growth. The way we've tried to manage it is by working with good community partners on the ground uh, who provide workforce development. Uh, and, and training opportunities, both to help people apply for jobs yeah. uh, and get access to jobs uh, and well-paying career track jobs, and also for small business owners and entrepreneurs, teaching them the business skills that they might not have ever received, helping them become more profitable, help them grow and scale, take advantage of procurement opportunities that are coming to Richmond, all as a way of keeping people uh, engaged and, and actively involved in these economic opportunities. Our philosophy is that if we can provide people with access to real economic opportunities, then they can pay their rent increase, hopefully get them into a position where they're owning a home. We started a a new program in Richmond in partnership with Mechanics Bank, the Richmond Community Foundation, and SparkPoint, where the city floated a $3 million bond that was purchased by Mechanics Bank. The Richmond Community Foundation uses it to buy and renovate blighted housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we sell that housing below market value wow. to SparkPoint graduates who are first-time homeowners. And yeah. those graduates are all low-income right. residents. So right. you're going from a position where you had no assets, and now you have a very valuable asset, right. especially right. In, in this economy. So thinking creatively about equity and inclusion, thinking about the city's role 
and what cities can do with budget constraints um, and how we strategically partner with other players in the space yeah. uh, to take advantage of economic opportunities uh, and also try to mitigate displacement. We, yeah. we love our residents. We want them to stick around for a long time. They were with us when Richmond was the sixth most violent city in the nation, and yep. I want them to be with us be with us now. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you have the opportunity to get out ahead of the curve a little bit, right? So it sounds like um, like your business development initiatives, right, where you're helping people uh, learn the skills necessary to grow their business. That's a way of saying, let's make sure that in 10 years when, let's say we have more tech here and we have people who are moving from, instead of from San Francisco, they're not going to Oakland anymore, they're going to Richmond. We don't have the the bougie hipster coffee shop that charges $4 for a cup of coffee come in and put all the local coffee shops out of business. You have local business owners who are Richmond-owned businesses, right? And they can stake their place, and, you know, plant their flag and be successful for years in the future. I think that, that that's exactly right. We recently did a survey of all of our residents asking them, what do you love about Richmond and what do you hate about Richmond? Yeah. And the number one thing that people said that they love about Richmond is our diversity. We're about a third Latino, a third African-American, and a third white. And then even within those groups, uh, we're a third foreign-born. We're about a, a fourth Spanish-speaking in the household. Uh, our African-American population, some of them identify as African-American. Others identify as being Ethiopian or, or, or something else. And so we want to retain that. I feel like that's what gives people uh, a, a real sense of pride and purpose uh, to be in Richmond. Now, we are seeing development interests come into the city. Again, we've seen rent uh, increases. We've seen people buy housing uh, that, that aren't Richmond residents, aren't the third or fourth generation Richmond resident. And we welcome them also. We, we want people to know that Richmond's a great place to live, a great place to work, and a great place to play. We're launching ferry service from Richmond to San Francisco to help deal with some of the congestion along the I-80 corridor. And we see some housing development going up there as well. So for us, you know, the, the onus is really how do we create structures where people can fully participate in these economic and residential opportunities in the city? And also, how do we create structures that stand the test of time? The fact of the matter is, is that we're an elected office. So in four years, right. people can unelect us right, if they so right. choose. So these programs that we're setting up, how do we give ownership to some of our community partners right. with the full backing of the city so that if we are unfortunately voted out of office, these programs efforts. stand. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's, I, I'm going to throw something at you, and you can, you can take a pass on this one. Sure. Um, if you want, because I recognize you work for an elected official. There's a rent control ordinance on the Richmond ballot in November. And, and, I'm gonna, and that, that enough would be controversial. That enough like, hey, can you give me your response on that? That enough would be controversial. But I'm going to actually make it one layer more complex. So okay. when we were at Gold, I remember very clearly Steve Raphael saying to us that progressive economists who care about housing affordability and care about maintaining housing opportunities for um, low-income families and middle-income families all oppose rent control mm -hmm. because the net result of rent control down the line is lower quality housing and less affordable housing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now I, I think that that um, conclusion is actually complicated in a place like, like the Bay Area where rent has become unaffordable so quickly, we can't build housing quickly because of red tape and a variety of other factors. Et cetera, et cetera. It's a more complicated picture than that. Mm -hmm. But what we learned at Goldman about rent control being not the right solution to housing affordability crises, mm -hmm. it's exactly in opposition to the instincts of the activists on the ground, the community members who are under threat, mm -hmm. who say rent control is great. Let's put rent control ordinances on the ballot in Richmond and a whole bunch of other cities in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. Does your training as a Goldman um, uh, student, graduate, 
ever put you in conflict with community activists who you agree with on a values level, who you want the same results as, but have to have hard conversations about the right approaches, strategies, and tactics to get there? Absolutely. Okay. Each and every day. And, <laughs> and, and on this, I mean, this, this exact issue is, is probably the best example we do yeah. have. Uh, our rent control history in Richmond is very interesting. Uh, we had a group of council members that voted uh, to enact a rent control ordinance in the city. And immediately after that passed, uh, we saw landlords increasing their property values. These are landlords who've never increased their rents, uh, never increased uh, anything uh, really on, on any of their tenants for decades. And all of a sudden were coming to us saying, look, I really don't want to kick out, you know, Miss Susie and her grandma, but I cannot afford, you know, to run the risk of being locked in at this level that I've been charging since 1992, mm -hmm. given the way property values and everything are going in the city now. So there was an opposition that was mounted against that. Uh, the council members voted to uh, repeal their yeah. ordinance. They voted and, it in and then voted so it they out. they voted it in right. and they voted it out. Yep. And now we have a group of community members uh, who, on a personal level, I, I love each and every one of them. Uh, and on most issues, I agree with them totally. on. Of course. Uh, they are backing a rent control measure uh, that also has a just cause component too. And having those conversations is, is really difficult. Trying to explain to people uh, my logical reasons for why I think it's a bad idea uh, and provide them with real-time examples like San Francisco has a rent control ordinance, Oakland has a rent control ordinance, and all those folks are moving to Richmond, yeah. right? Uh, trying to provide them with those examples, it, it doesn't always gel well with them. Yeah. Uh, but again, e even in those moments, it's about how you deliver the message. At least that's what I've found. Uh, so we disagree. Uh, our office's position is that uh, rent control would not be a good policy for Richmond at this point in time. Um, we're trying to come up with creative solutions. We're currently meeting with developers, community groups, uh, building trade associations and others to come up with a housing strategy for Richmond that includes everything from big box residential, uh, high, high, high dense yeah, high development yeah. uh, to the uh, second dwelling unit in your backyard. Uh, or allowing you to rent out the extra bedroom in, in, in your house and kind of everything in between, uh, except for tiny houses. We're not looking at, we're not into <laughs> tiny houses. So, so, so we're trying to identify other solutions that can work. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for me, it, it's at times like this where uh, I view it as an opportunity to be creative and innovative. When you have two sides that uh, just do not see eye to eye on an issue, it's okay, how do we get you guys to come to the middle? And in that middle, what does that look like? What, what does that innovation look like. That's how we were able to come to innovation around our social impact bond program. That's how we were able to innovate with our community policing model. Yeah. I think there's a real opportunity in Richmond right now to do something really creative, really innovative, and really successful around affordable housing. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about um, community policing. It's, it's another issue like housing that is at the forefront of the national and state level news, but really the rubber hits the road in, in the city of Richmond, right? So you had a police chief in Chris Magnus, um, who uh, was famous for his outreach to the community. There is a iconic photo of him holding a Black Lives Matter sign at a Black Lives Matter protest. And this was a time when police chiefs across the country, black and white, were standing in opposition to the movement and saying that it was bad for their communities, hurting their ability to police effectively and so on. And he stood up and said, uh, no, this matters. Black Lives Matter. And then when he faced criticism from officers, if I'm not mistaken, he said he would do it again. Yes. Right? He stood by his position. It was really a, a profile and courage for him. Um, Chris Magnus has left. He's now the head of police in the city of Tucson, leading a 
police department that's almost five times as large, you know, moving on up, I guess. <laughs> um, and what have you learned about, I have a couple questions in the area, right? So first of all, what have you learned about the right way to do community policing from that, that the example and, and how difficult is it to continue the policies of someone who might have been an iconoclast within his field, right? Mm-hmm. And to keep those lessons continuing after his departure. Mm. That's an amazing question. Thank you so much. Really good one. <laughs> I've, started, I've started responding to that every time someone says that's a question. <laughs> Perfect. So, you know, I, I'll answer the second question first sure, and then come back go to ahead. the first question. So, I have, I'm throwing these massive questions at you with long monologues. Go ahead. No, no, it's, it's perfectly fine. So our new police chief, uh, Chief Alwyn Brown, was part of the Richmond Police Department for about two decades. Okay. Uh, and he is totally bought into the philosophy that Chris Magnus instilled around community-based policing. So for us, it's been a relatively seamless transition. Of course, there, there are two different people. Chris Magnus was uh, very energetic, very out there, uh, great guy. Uh, Chief Brown is not as energetic. He's, he's not as out there. He's really more into kind of the internal looking at policing and how policing is done. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's bought into the community policing Uh, philosophy. And so from that standpoint, our residents have not seen any change in how we police our communities. Uh, And really, it's not even how we police our communities, it's how we work with our communities to ensure that we have safe, vibrant places for everybody to live. I think what we've learned from Chief Magnus, and maybe is a good lesson for other cities and others who want to do community policing, is that, you know, it's not as simple as taking cops out of cop cars and and having them ride bikes or walk a beat. Uh, if that's all it took, then everybody would have you know, all these issues solved and, and resolved. Uh, it, it, community policing is a philosophy. It's something that you have to totally believe in, that you have to totally ingrain into everything it that you do. The it permeates the institution. To, yeah. And through every part of the institution, whether you're talking about the beat officer and the line officers that you and I interact with when we get pulled over for a parking ticket, whether it's the sergeants or the lieutenants, the assistance chief, the actual chief, and then the... Deputy dispatcher, the, the, the civilian who answers the call when you dial 911, they have to believe in it. The mayor has to believe in it. All of us have to be bought into this idea of community policing. And most importantly, the community has to buy into it. And that's the hard part. Yeah. Because for so long, all of our communities, particularly black and brown communities, uh, have had a negative relationship yeah. with policing. And we see that playing out all across the nation right now. So let me, let me ask you a question about what it's like to interact with community members, right? When somebody comes to you, and so Richmond had a, a really high violent crime rate in the 90s, um, and it has drap, dropped really dramatically. Um, and last year was, was, I believe, a historic low for murders in the city of Richmond, and this year it's ticked up slightly, okay? Yes. Mm-hmm. So when a community member comes to you, let's say an African-American community member comes to you and says, on the one hand, I don't want Richmond to go back to the way it was. I, you know, we, we really do want safe streets. We want safe communities. At the same time, that's someone who, let's say they're an older person, right? They have decades of experience working with, knowing what it's like to be on the wrong end of, of um, what's law enforcement, mm-hmm. right? What does that conversation look like when a longtime black resident of Richmond comes to a young man who is now the, the like, high-level representative for the city of Richmond? What are those conversations like? How does that person state their case to you, and how do you sort of take in everything they have to say, the full complexity of their experience, and respond to them in a way that makes them feel confident about the city's future? You know, that, that's a very... It's a very challenging conversation to have with people because yeah. typically when people are coming to us with that complaint... 
they're emotional. It's coming from this real sincere place, either of sadness or of fear or of anger and frustration. Uh, so the very first thing we do is we bring them into the mayor's office. We oh, actually wow. bring them into the mayor's office yeah. and have them sit down in our conference room or at the mayor's desk, and we will talk to them about what the issue is, how they're feeling, what it is they've gone through, and then I try to empathize with them by telling them my personal story. When I was 16 years old, I got chased by police, and I had a police officer point a gun in my face at point-blank range. So I know what that fear is like right. thinking to yourself at any given moment this officer can make a decision or not even make a decision just do something yeah. that can in my life right here uh, and so we talk about that we give people time to, to, to talk about their frustrations to talk about their anger to talk about how Richmond used to be uh, and then we slowly try to take them from that point and say you know well we have a new model we have multiple models it's not just community policing we have our office of neighborhood safety we're doing more intentional programs with boys and men of color, specifically within Richmond and also collaboratively with other cities in the Bay Area. Uh, and you have a, a black chief of staff in the mayor's office, I, I think. And I haven't confirmed this, but I've heard somebody tell me that I'm the first African-American chief of staff in Richmond's history. Yeah. I don't know if I believe it, mm -hmm. but it's just something to be said. So helping somebody like that just see the real changes and getting to, to a point where we can now say, let's have a conversation with our African-American police chief. I would like for you to meet him mm -hmm. or our assistant police chief, who's an African-American woman. And let's sit down and let's talk about these issues. Let's talk about how you feel. The goal is never to discount somebody. Uh, that's not even the point of it. The point is to validate how a person is feeling, uh, to help educate them a little bit on how things are, at least how we perceive them. And then to work together to make those improvements because there's something that that gentleman is saying or that that woman is saying that's probably true. Absolutely. They, they feel upset for a reason. So how do we take that feedback as a city and incorporate that to improve right. our processes? Right. Awesome. Transitioning to something dramatically less significant uh, and import, important. Uh, last question for you, right? So um, what word do you use to refer to our generation? Do you use the term millennial? I don't use the term millennial. Okay. Uh, Neither I, do I. Okay. That, that's good to know. <laughs> I, I feel like our generation, or maybe our part of our generation, uh -huh. we're, we're kind of transitory. We're, yeah. we're stuck in this period of transition where, unlike teenagers today, I'm old enough to remember an era when we didn't have computers. Right. I'm old enough to remember, or at least not in my household. Let me yeah. put it, I have to use an encyclopedia, right? Uh, I'm old enough to remember AOL. And, yeah, same. And, trying to answer, you know, call somebody and Wouldn't I just have, hear the internet's talking right, to each other. Same. You know, I, I, I'm old enough to remember uh, 90s hip-hop and R&B and, and all that. Um, and so I, I feel like we're kind of stuck in, the, in between both worlds where at least my parents' generation uh, grew up without any of the stuff that our kids have nowadays. Right. Facebook, Twitter, right. kind of all that stuff. Um, but I appreciate everything and, and I can talk to them in a really real way about everything that they've experienced um, because I understand it. I've taken the time to learn about it. I've incorporated it into my life, whether it's uh, music culture, like yeah. I, my mom and I can jam out to Luther Vandross, uh -huh. and I can turn right back around and yeah. jam out with my little cousins to Taylor Swift, uh -huh. right? I mean, I'm, I'm kind really? of playing both ends of the spectrum. I mean, okay. you know, it's my right. little cousins. I got to... Credibility yeah. took a hit there right, at the, end, right at the end of the interview. I know, but, you know, <laughs> I got to be honest, right? Sure, right. So, so we're not millennials. I'm not sure what, we're, what we are. We're not a lost generation. I feel like we're the bridge yeah. between uh, society as we knew it uh, that was based on 
industry and, and you can pre graduate from college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's just that pre-information age and society as we know it now. People who are totally wired at all times. Totally wired. Works Everything's acceptable. All, you know, yeah. Everything is, is accessible and yeah, immediate yeah. and fast yeah. and quick yeah. all the time. But yeah. I, I'm not trying to be famous, right. <laughs> but I'm also not trying to be a cog in a wheel. I mean, we're, we're right there at the intersection yeah. of, of those two. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, man. I, the search for the proper definition for us continues. It continues. Yeah. Someday, I think, through your, your incredible work as a cog in the wheel in the city of Richmond, you're going to become famous. You're doing too much good work not to. <laughs> thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jonathan. All right. I'm Jonathan Stein. One more time, I want to thank David Gray for joining us today. I, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Jonathan Stein. Thanks for watching.